0: The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 48 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 13th of July, 2020, from the mobile aviator sound studios from the seventh floor of the Georgetown Marriott Hotel in our nation's capital. Let me start off the show today by saying thank you to Rob D. and Captain Roger for joining me on episode 47, Airline Apocalypse. We had a great time talking about subjects that ranged from the isolation weight gain to outraged senators for having to subject themselves to commercial flights that are close to full capacity. Oh, the tragedy of being trapped in a pressurized climate controlled metal tube traveling over 500 miles an hour, nearly five miles over the surface of the earth with hundreds of strangers that may or may not have the modern day equivalent of the plague. Why do they make me do this? This is torture. On today's show, I have the privilege of speaking with an amazing aviator. He is an AMP, an avionics tech, an ATP pilot who has flown for multiple airline carriers, multiple corporate carriers, and he continues to amaze me with how much he gets done in this community. He shares his journey with us today on the show, and he talks about everything from his very first flight all the way through his current position here at Legacy Airlines. He has multiple type ratings and some amazing airplanes from MD-80, MD-90, 75, 76, Airbus A320, an EMB 110, a Jetstream 31, and many, many more. He shares his story and his progression with us here, so stay tuned and enjoy the show. Right after a brief word from our sponsors. I started out my day today with a golden opportunity to sleep in past 7 a.m. It was amazing. After a fantastic cup of home-brewed coffee, a brisk walk around the neighborhood, and a final inventory of my overnight bag, kit bag, and mobile studio bag, I was all set to begin another adventure in aviation. Sunday morning commutes to the airport are my absolute favorite. We have minimal traffic, a few exotic cars to gawk at on the road. And a relatively quiet airport terminal to contend with i arrived at legacy airlines lax flight operations about an hour to spare before my sign in just enough time to check my mailbox dispense a hot cup of coffee from the fancy starbucks machine that our chief pilot's office was able to acquire for us a few years back and i was able to spend some time to catch up with our next guest He and I have flown together a handful of times here at Legacy Airlines, the alias we use here on Squawk Ident, because, as the intro disclaimer states, we do not represent our company in any way, shape, or form. And we, of course, do that to protect ourselves. Every time we fly together, I am so impressed with how much fun we have. I find the conversations and the laughs we share to be the highlights of the trips we've flown He has agreed to share a bit of his journey in aviation with us, and for that I am very grateful. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Captain Dave Paterno.
1: Captain, how the heck are you? Good to be here, man. Um, It's nice to be on a trip flying with you again. Things are good here in uh, Washington. Yeah, a little DCA uh, overnight here. Weather's nice outside. Get out to see some of the sights. Good trip. Yeah,
0: we uh, we did a one-leg-in yesterday. We landed around 9 p.m., and the flight was relatively uneventful. We did a little deviations for weather there halfway through the uh, crossing over to the country, and and I really enjoyed the way you communicate in the cockpit. Your, as we call CRM, or Crew Resource Management, or uh, TEM is the new term that uh, most of the carriers are using now, the Threat and Error Management model, um, you know, you said, Hey, uh, looks like there's a cell ahead. I'm thinking about 20 right? What do you think? Like, Hey, that, that, I agree. That sounds great. And then I would request from ATC 20 degrees, right? Deviations for weather. And of course they were granted and, and you continue to vocalize your opinion and really request that I give you my feedback as well. Um, and, and that's just a wonderful experience.
1: You know, I was a first officer at this carrier for a long time, and so I got to see a lot of different captain styles. And you start to develop an opinion after a while. It's like, I don't want to be like that guy, and I really admire how this guy does things. And so after a while, you get your bag of tricks from all the different people you've flown with, and also some of it is like, this is how I would like to be treated if I was sitting over there because I did sit over there for an awful long time. and so. Drawing you into the equation, of course, is just smart as well. Um, Nobody likes to fly with a guy that says, this is what I'm going to do and to hell with you. (laughs) Yeah, and, and,
0: you know, anyone that's been in this industry long enough, whether it's at a corporate gig, a private gig, or a regional carrier, or even a mainline, you know, you're going to always come across different personalities, different flying styles, and it really is a learning experience every time you get to fly with someone who incorporates all the positivity that you yourself want to develop and for that you know i thank you it's that's part of the reason we, i think we get along so well together is we have similar opinions of of how we should treat each other and especially in the cockpit i think so yeah so you know we've we've flown together a handful of times and you know every time we get into these great conversations in the cockpit and you know, as we're flying along across the country for hours at a time with minimal interaction with ATC, because really when you're crossing the country at 37, 38, 39,000 feet, you know, you get frequency changes and occasional deviations here and there, but really there's not much chatter going on, uh, unlike when you're in a terminal area uh, doing a quick hop. And we have these opportunities to share these stories about our past and about our journeys, uh, which is really the reason i started this podcast last year uh, was because i felt that i had the honor and the privilege of of speaking with all these people that i get to fly with whether you know sitting in the left or right seat i've always enjoyed sharing the stories and listening to the stories and i really wanted to bring that to the world because if i knew half of these experiences, or at least heard about them when I was starting out in aviation, I think my career path would have been a little easier for me of making these decisions. So I thank you for sitting down with us today. Um, Absolutely. I I wanted to ask you how you really got started, because that's really probably the primary question we ask each other once we start to get to know each other. How'd you get started in aviation?
1: You know, as a kid, um, I... Liked airplanes, but probably the biggest event for me that happened is that my father took me with him on a cross-country flight as he was learning to fly. His flight instructor uh, and my father um, flew an airplane from Oakdale, California, up to Chilliquin, Oregon, and I was invited to go along on that trip. Now, it was kind of a combination business trip and flight instruction trip for my father father was a horse veterinarian, or actually a large animal veterinarian, and he was asked by one of his clients to come to Oregon to work some cattle. And by working cattle as a veterinarian, it primarily meant for him that he was doing pregnancy checks of heifers. And he was asked to come up there, and my dad said that he could uh, get his flight instructor to do a long cross-country flight with him, and that would allow him to get some experience flying the airplane. So they uh, took a Cessna 182, and I sat in the back and rode up from Oakdale to Chiloquin, Oregon at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I thought this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And how old were you at the time? I think I was probably about 10 or so, and maybe 9. My parents had the foresight to realize that Uh, I liked this, and they talked to the same flight instructor that my dad was using and said, is this something that uh, David could do as a young man and take a flying lesson for a half an hour or so? And the instructor was like, well, of course. So they put me in the left seat of a Cessna 150, and I went and took a flying lesson on my 11th birthday and thought this is really, really cool and couldn't wait to do it again. I had to wait till my 12th birthday to do it again. And then again, you know, a couple years later, uh, I kept doing it until about the time I was f- 13, I think, is when we moved from Oakdale to Madeira. And fortunately for me, um, the desire to fly airplanes was satisfied by the fact that we moved right by the Madeira airport. Uh, we lived less than a mile away. And in uh, the afternoons after I get done with school, I would get on my bicycle and ride my bike over to the Madeira airport and hang out wherever I could find anything going on.
0: What is that uh, term? uh, Is that hanger rat when you're a kid and you're just hanging out around the Mm, hangar?
1: Airport bum. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Somebody that's in the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's awesome because that really, it sounds to me like that really sparked a passion for this career.
1: As a kid, I remember um, riding around in the back of the real estate agent's car and one of the uh, places that we looked at was the place that my folks eventually bought. And I remember thinking, like, God, I want them to buy this place because it's right by the airport. I really want them to buy this place. And my folks actually liked another place a little bit better, but um, the I think the seller didn't accept their offer, and they ended up buying this place. And it was a huge windfall for me uh, as a kid to be that close to the airport because I could get on my bike and go over there. Um, a uh, Man that owned a a fixed-base operation there that was doing mechanic-type work um, saw me hanging around, and, you know, I was a little bit forthright, is that the right word, um, and asking him if I could ride with him as he taxied an airplane down and put it in a hangar. And he's like, well, sure. (laughs) So I thought that was cool to just to get it to sit in the thing while we started it up and drove it down to the hangar. And if I remember right, it was a tailor craft that had to be propped, And so I'm like, well, this is really cool. (laughs) You know, he's like, hold the brakes. I'm going to prop it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and I was like 13 or 14 in this first, you know, experience to just move an airplane down the taxiway. And so, you know, with that starting out like that, it's like, man, I'm showing up here every day. This guy's cool. And uh, I started helping him take inspection panels off of airplanes. And um, I worked more and more into it. And eventually he uh, offered me a summer job. It wasn't that year, but the following year when I was a freshman in high school after that uh, uh, first kind of year of getting to know him, um, at the end of my freshman year in high school, he offered me a summer job. So, you know, I'll pay you to come out here and help me do this kind of work. And it didn't involve anything different than what I was already doing, except now I was making money and I had more of a responsibility to actually show up. I didn't need any more encouragement. I was already excited to be there. And so I showed up and made money I'm like, this is really cool. Now I get paid to do this. And eventually that translated into, uh, I became an A&P mechanic out of it, I guess is where I was trying to go with that. Um, I didn't realize that it was a path that I could actually turn into becoming a mechanic. Um, I was now in college after graduating from high school and my boss came to me one day and he says, you need to get your A&P license. And I said, how can I possibly, you know, go to school at a community college? Reedley College was about the closest place where a person could get an A&P license. How can I do that and still go to school full-time at Fresno State and come here and work for you? And he explained to me that I was already qualified uh, to be an a and P, I didn't need to go to college to get my A&P license. Um, I actually had more experience than students coming out of A&P school have, and that all he needed to do is, uh, quote, sign me off, and then uh, take this letter to the FAA, and the FAA would then allow me to take the uh, written exams, and there's three of them, the airframe, the power plan, and the general uh, mechanics. And once I passed those exams, then my boss would arrange for a designated examiner to come and give me an oral and a practical exam, and if I succeeded in all of that, I would have an A&P license. And how old were you when you achieved that? Um, that was in 1982, and so I think I was 19.
0: So you you were working here at the the Madera Airport as a, basically a, a mechanical apprentice. A mechanics and helper is the a way I always mechanics play. helper, and so you were also taking flying lessons when you could, right? Because uh, you, you were telling me you got your private pilot's right around sixteen I years old. My, uh,
1: I got my I soloed on my sixteenth birthday, and I got my license on my seventeenth birthday. the uh, The way that I learned to fly was a little bit different than the average person uh, might learn to fly. One of the things that we did. Um, when working on aircraft is that typically we would fly the aircraft around the pattern uh, before we started working on it and that was to get the engine good and hot so then we did a compression check we would have valid results the oil would be hot so that it would drain out quickly and so I got a whole lot of flying time just by doing one hop around the pattern come back in and work on the airplane and we might work on it for a week and then at the end of the week We would fly it around the pattern again to make sure that everything was normal and that there weren't any fasteners that sometimes pop loose in flight that you don't notice on the ground, so we could deal with that. And then oftentimes after that, we might uh, reposition the airplane to another airport uh, because the owner was at a different airport. And I developed a lot of flying time by moving airplanes in that manner. Um, And I remember my boss telling me, Every time you fly an airplane, put it in your logbook, even if it's just a tenth at a time. It says, before you know it, you'll have a lot of time. And he was right. By the time that I soloed, I had about 100 hours, and I had about 180 by the time that I got my license a year later. And like you say, probably 75%, maybe even 80% of that time was one hop around the pattern at a time or simply repositioning in an airplane from one airport in the Central Valley of California to a different airport.
0: One could actually say that, you were working on building your time to get your private pilot license while being a test pilot.
1: I guess you could say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, and that's just an awesome story. And I, I was just floored the first time you told me that, that, you know, here you were. And I'm just thinking of the, the ingenuity and the, create, the creativity that it took to, to think, you know, I'm going to. Do this. I have such a, a dedication and passion. And you're at that airport. You're riding your bicycle to the airport, and you're helping a mechanic just so you can get this experience to ride along, taxing around, and 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 testing uh, these airplanes out after being worked on. Because you know, I totally get it. My my father was a, a mechanic, uh, owned his own auto repair shop. So at 12 13, 14 years old, I was doing the same exact thing with vehicles instead of airplanes. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, there's this. Uh, this passion that you have and when you have it and you find a creative outlet for it like hanging out at the airport and finding someone to give you that experience and that person to have the trust in a young man like yourself that shows this dedication to say hey let's go we're going to you know go around the pattern and hold the brakes for me while i while i <laughs> turn the prop on here to get it started that's just amazing
1: is a um, a very giving person um, absolutely treated me like gold. And I still know him to this day. Uh, yesterday I spoke with him as I was driving into work. I call and ask him questions all the time about things that, you know, I don't necessarily know how to do. And he has been absolutely stellar towards me. Wow. Um, an extremely good friend. Um, he taught me to fly. Uh, I mentioned the other day to you when we were talking that, he also taught my daughter to fly. Um, I soloed in July of nineteen seventy nine. My daughter soloed in August of two thousand eighteen. Um, almost, I think it's about thirty nine years between the two. And he's still instructing to this day. Uh, so he's a flight instructor. He is a uh, airplane mechanic. Uh, has inspection authorization. He's a retired airline pilot now, and he's just a very unique individual and a lot of people would say that I'm just like him and I probably am.
0: Well, you know, you are a product of, of your mentors and your teachers over the years and it sounds like he's done a, a phenomenal job. I mean, I, I hear about him and I think, I think I'm lazy, you know, I'm (laughs) like, Oh my God, look at all this, that, that he's accomplished and, and an amazing story. And, the fact that you have connections with people in your life and in aviation for over almost 40 years, you know, it's just an amazing uh, testament to friendship,
1: one to loyalty. The, one of the things, of course, in, in this industry, and I'm sure it's the way this way in a lot of industries, is that a lot of the success that you have in a career is who you know. Um, and, you know, business people call that networking and And that's all it really is is you know knowing the right people and um, developing friendships with those people and and when you have a good friend, they're willing to help you and I hope that I'm doing the same for other people yeah it's it's funny because in previous
0: episodes we've we've done interviews and we've mentioned the interview process at an airline, and part of that process is you're going to be placed in front of a board, usually, or two or three pilots, fellow pilots, um, that are really just making sure that, to put it bluntly, that you're not an asshole, that you get along with others, you have a good personality, because am I going to get along with this person on a four- or five-day trip or three-day trip, or is this person going to have a personality issue that's gonna last a career possibly if it's not checked right away. So it sounds like you were given the tools not just with your knowledge of uh, you know developing your A and P and and your flying career, but it also you were given the tools to learn how to be kind of a good person and and a helper and a giving person like your mentors were with you.
1: I suppose you're right. I, I also think that I get a lot of that from my father. My father is a extremely popular veterinarian and he is a really good person, and people see that in him. He is also a very effective communicator. Um, I could be better at that, Um, but I try.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned uh, that you worked on your A&P, and you also mentioned that you were attending the Fresno State. What can you tell me about that transition from, you know, you got your private pilot license, you were working, uh, and also going to college. Did you get a degree in something related with aviation or was it something different?
1: You know, I did not. I I got a degree in business. Um, I was told early on that you needed to have a degree and it needed to be a science type of degree and not an arts type degree to be successful in the aviation world. And I initially thought that I would be an engineer and I had been accepted to go to school at Cal Poly Pomona. Oh, cool. And then I met a girl who I uh, changed my mind that like, you know, I can go to school at Fresno state instead of going clear to Los Angeles to go to school. And I could do a mechanical engineering degree and I wasn't successful at the mechanical engineering level. And changed my major to business at the suggestion of a friend of mine. who says, you know, you could do better at this. It's not quite as technically challenging. And so I changed my major to business and was successful at that.
0: Wow. So you graduated from Fresno State and walk me through that process. You were still in Madera and you were working as an AMP at this point, correct? Yes. And so that had the money was coming in. Anyone else might have thought, well, you know, this is a good career path. I'll just stick with this. But you didn't. You, you kept challenging yourself. How, how did you do that?
1: Yeah, I wanted to fly for a living. You know, mechanicing on an airplane is hard work and you get dirty. And I felt that there was more money in the flying part of it. And I enjoyed that more than working on the airplanes. Uh, working on the airplanes was an avenue to get to fly them. And there were a couple of different paths that I was considering. Um, I certainly wanted to be a flight instructor because I admired, the, I admired my friend Vern, who I was working for as the mechanic, who was also my flight instructor. I admired the flight instructor that taught my dad to fly and gave me my first half a dozen lessons. And so I thought, well, maybe flight instructor is what I need to be, uh, not realizing as a young man that it, you know, that's just kind of a stepping stone along to better things. Um, so I decided that, uh, I was going to continue with the mechanicing, um, for as long as I needed to. Um, but there were other avenues that I was trying to go down in order to make, uh, the flying more of a reality. And one of the things that I had considered was, um, maybe I could be a pilot for the Air National Guard in Fresno and flying in and out of Fresno, which was very close to the Madeira Airport, Um, I flew in and out of Fresno a lot, and I would see those fighter jets sitting there. And I thought, you know, those look really cool and fun. Um, And at the time, the the Fresno Air National Guard had F-106s, which is a Delta Wing airplane. It's a Mach 2 aircraft, and they're neat. Now, they're old. They were old then. Um, But I thought if I could get into doing something like that, that would be a really good career path. And I had a friend whose father ran the Honda dealership in town, uh, that he was also interested in the air national guard. And so he and I agreed to go down and talk to a recruiter. We went together, uh, talked to the recruiter and, uh, figured out that, yes, we can, we can actually do this. And there is a path, um, for people that just show up at the recruiter's office. Um, if you're in the unit for a year, then you can apply to be a pilot. And it's like, okay. Um, let's, let's do this. And so he and I signed up together. His dad was a lieutenant colonel in the army guard and he came over and swore us in. And so that was kind of neat for Larry. And then I knew his dad as well. In fact, I knew his dad before I knew my friend Larry. And we started going to the air national guard, uh, one weekend a month. And then during the summer of 84, we went to basic training. Um, we both wanted to finish college, uh, for that semester before we left to go to basic training. And the recruiters tried to tell us that, you know, going to basic training in the summer in San Antonio is a mistake, <laughs> pretty hot and humid there, but we're like, you know, it's hot in Fresno. How bad could it be? And boy, did I learn there's a difference between Fresno heat and San Antonio heat. Yeah. Um, so went to the Air National Guard, um, came back, uh, from training and, while I was in training at Shepherd Air Force Base, um, I was able to get my CFI completed. There was an aero club there that I would go to after uh, school for the day, and I would take flying lessons there to become a CFI. And I took my check ride just before I shipped out of uh, Shepherd Air Force Base to uh, go on to training for the F4 because Fresno had since converted to the F-4 while I was in basic training. And now I wasn't flying the F-4. I was a crew chief, a maintenance mechanic on them. So it was still kind of in the maintenance path. Um, But it was a good thing for me because I already knew maintenance. It was easy for me to show up there and do maintenance on fighters. And I always had it in the back of my mind that I was going to apply for a pilot slot at the Air National Guard and maybe I'd get to become a pilot. Uh, as it turns out, I did apply three different times to try to be a pilot at the Air National Guard. I was still in college at the time. And in hindsight, I've figured out and learned from talking to people that I was an easy elimination because I was still in school. Five or six people would apply for these pilot slots every time, highly competitive. Some of the people already had their college completed. And so it's like I was an easy one to eliminate because the board had to figure out a way to choose. And One of the ways they can choose is like, well, you have all of these different requirements that you need to have in order to be a pilot in the Air National Guard, and one of them is a college degree. Now, the, the recruiter for the pilot positions told me that I could get a waiver, and then I could complete my schooling after I got back from undergraduate pilot training. I assumed that meant I was just as competitive as the next guy. I since have figured out differently. Anyway, the first board, my buddy Larry, won. And he went on to become the wing commander at the Fresno Air National Guard.
0: Oh, oh cool. <laughs> and
1: so that was pretty neat for him. Yeah. Um, I never was selected. Uh, I did my six years in the Air National Guard. It was a unique time there. When I first started, we had F-106s. When I came back from training, uh, we had converted to the F-4. We also had T-33s at that time that provided a target for the F-106s and the F-4 to intercept. And the last year that I was there, we converted to the f sixteen. So, I saw four different airplane types in a six year period. It was a very unique time uh after I got out, they continued to fly f sixteens for about the next twenty three years before converting to the f fifteen about seven years ago now um I'm proud of my uh, time in the Air National Guard. um I had a good time there. I wish I'd been able to become a pilot. didn't work out, so it's like, okay, it's time to move on at that time. When I got out, I had already started to work for a commuter airline. And so it's like, you know, I'm, it's getting harder and harder to do the Air National Guard thing. And my commitment was up, and so I separated.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned you were working at uh, a commuter there in Fresno uh, for a United Express carrier. What was that like?
1: Um, that was a very popular carrier at the time for people on the West Coast to work for. Um, At that time, there were three um, carriers, I guess you could say, that were competitive in the regional airline industry, and at that time, we called them commuters. It was uh, pretty much uh, American Eagle, West Air United Express, and SkyWest, which was a Delta connection carrier, and I was interested in West Air United Express because They were headquartered there in Fresno, and I was living there. I was like, I wouldn't have to move or do anything. I would just go to the other side of the airport to go to work. Um, A friend in the Air National Guard um, was working for them, and he pretty much is the one who convinced me that I should come to work there. And in fact, he was instrumental in my coming to work there because he calls me up after a drill weekend at the Guard and uh, told me that he was in the chief pilot's office And there was a stack of resumes on his desk, and if I brought him my resume, he would put it on the top of that pile right then and there. And so I thought, there's no way that I can turn this opportunity down. I drove over and met him with my resume, and he set it on the top of the stack of other resumes on the chief pilot's desk, and I got a phone call within two or three days of doing that. Wow.
0: I mean, talk about a change in atmosphere from then to today. I mean, now... It doesn't matter if you hand your resume into a pilot and they walk it in for you because the chief pilots don't accept them. It's all online computer algorithms. You have to do the personality test, and then you have to submit your application and your your flight time. And
1: I probably wouldn't get hired these days. You know, I, I don't think
0: I would either. I mean, it's just such a, a competitive, difficult, and really sterile environment to apply. It's no longer. I mean, I think there is an aspect of word of mouth and marketing and, and, you know, who you know, and that definitely does hold true because those people help you with knowing what steps to take. You know, you got to do this, this, and this, and that's, that's the path that you need to take. But in terms of handing a resume over, I just, I love hearing that because those days are pretty much done unless you're in a small corporate environment where then that is absolutely The best way to do it still um but in today's marketplace especially now with everything that's going on it's all about you know does the algorithm match you with you know the the job placement for that company you know swipe left swipe right (laughs) basically it's come down to that with (laughs) airline jobs um but you know you you mentioned to me earlier on a conversation we were having that while you were working at united express you also were working somewhere else at the Cessna dealership. What can you tell me about that?
1: Yes. Um, we've kind of jumped a little bit here. Um, I had a, a career path in, uh, being a corporate pilot for a while. Um, I had returned from the air national guard in the fall of 84. And in the spring of 85, United airlines pilots went on strike. And there was a, there was one corporate job at the Madeira airport and the pilot that was flying a Cessna 421 for a local contractor in town decided that he was going to go to work at United Airlines and his opportunity, the way he saw it came when the pilots at United went on strike. And so this guy was going to be a scab and he was very fortunate in that. He went to training during the strike, but didn't complete training before the strike was over. And so he had basically stated to me that, you know, he is going to go to work regardless because he wants that job. And at the time, I didn't know anything about, you know, unions and airlines, but he was fortunate in that it didn't come to that for him. And so he was never labeled a scab.
0: Yeah. And for those listeners out there that maybe are younger or haven't, ever heard the term before you know we now we still have unions and really they're more associations than they are unions labor unions um and they're crucial in our industry to help protect contract contract negotiations um compliance to just make sure that everybody's honest and doing what they're supposed to be doing and and it's a crucial part of at least an airline world But some people may not understand the term scab. Can you give us a little bit of background on that?
1: Um, A scab is typically someone who crosses a picket line when a union is on strike. So the union is trying to, for lack of a better word, throw their weight around and get the company to come around to seeing their point of view. And it typically happens at the end of uh, contract negotiations that have broken down. And so the United pilots had gotten to that point with their negotiations with their company and they uh, created a work stoppage and basically the pilots don't come to work and the airline shuts down because there's no pilots to fly the airplane. And a scab is typically somebody who decides that they don't need to participate in that money that they can make by going to work is more important to them than supporting the other pilots idea that we can get more money if we stop uh have a job stop ac- action.
0: Yeah, and there was a time when airlines could strike. Um and really that all changed when the airline industry was placed under the Railway Labor Act. And now striking had to be approved by a judge because transportation was deemed a critical phase of a service that we have in our economy. So you can't just it, like if you're working for a carrier and you know the majority of the work group or pilots decide hey, I don't like this contract. This is BS. Uh, we're just not going to show up to work tomorrow. And we're going to strike. And you can't do that. It's actually against the law now. Um, but there was a time when you actually could strike um, and. Now you have to have approval from a judge and in the process is I don't think anybody has has been able to do anything more than informational picketing. Um
1: since yeah, that's then. pretty much true. The the bad thing about a person that crosses the picket line and decides that they're gonna go to work anyway, is is they are labeled a scab and that follows them around for the rest of their career. Um and it makes it very difficult in the cockpit for somebody who is a scab. Other pilots hate that person. If he goes to a different carrier and tries to go to work there, that label will still follow him around. And it's generally a very bad decision to cross a picket line. It could Um, alter your career path for the rest of your life. Absolutely. I don't suggest it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Anyway, because this man decided that he was going to do this, that job became available. And one of my Uh, flight instructor friends, um, encouraged me to go get that job. And I told him at the time, I said, I don't think that I'm qualified. And he says, oh, sure you are. He says, you have a multi-engine rating, a commercial license. Um, You're young and your medical is good. Go apply for it. And I was fortunate in that I had just taken a business writing class in college. And a lot of it was about sending a cover letter and uh, how to make a decent resume. And so I was pretty hot on making my stuff look good. And I sent it to this owner of the aircraft for him to consider. A day or two goes by and my flight instructor friend says, you know, have you uh, gotten that job yet? And I said, well, I sent him a resume. I'm just kind of waiting to hear from him. He says, oh, no. He says, you call him and ask for the interview. (laughs) And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. You call him up. Do it right now. I'll stand here and wait. Oh, wow. So I went into the back of the hangar and picked up the phone and called the office and, you know, the secretary answers. I'm like, this is David Letourneau calling. Can you put me through to Dave Barry, please? <laughs> I was like 20 at the time. Yeah. I think I was 21. And uh, so Mr. Barry picks up the phone and like, you know, Mr. Barry, this is David Letourneau calling. You know, I sent you a resume a day or two ago. Um, I'd like to come in for an interview. Um, What'd you think of my resume? Well, you know, you're a little light on time, David. You know, you only got a thousand hours total time and a hundred multi. Um, So, you know, why don't you come on in? Wow. So uh, I went home. I was in my mechanics clothes. I went home and put on a suit and a tie and got in my car and drove down to his office and presented myself to the secretary at the front desk and said, I'm here to see Mr. Barry. Okay. I'll let him know you're here. And I'm shuffled back to his office and and I had known Mr. Barry um because he was out at the airport all the time in that airplane and so I saw him coming and going and he just knew me as the kid that worked out at the airport yeah and so you know he I sit down in front of his desk and he picks up my resume and says you know I would I'd have to send you to flight safety to do this um you know it's going to cost me some money I said I'm willing to go <laughs> I could go right now and uh he says, well let me talk to you know, um, the Cessna, uh, president at the local FBO in Fresno and, uh, see if he can get me a good deal on training. And, uh, he says, you know, we'll see if we can't get something set up. And I left the interview probably 15, 20 minutes later thinking like, I think I just got that job. <laughs> and so I, I kept on it, you know, I called him again the next day and I said, you know, did you talk to Mr. Wilson down there in Fresno? Uh, You know, he says, David, I actually have. And he thinks that he can get something set up for uh, Monday, the, you know, something or other, you know, like uh, 10 days from now. I'm like, God, this is actually happening. (laughs) Um, But he says, you need to go interview with him. He says, he wants to talk to you. All right. So I, you know, made an appointment to go see Mr. Wilson. And he was a little more tough than Mr. Barry was on me. Uh, One of the things that I learned about uh, Mr. Barry was that he was very much a person who wanted to hire people from the town that he lived in. He was a general contractor in town, and he probably built half of the homes in the city of Madera. And if he could do business with somebody in that town, he would go out of his way to make that happen. And since I lived in that town, even though there were other pilots from all over the central San Joaquin Valley applying for that job, I think that he wanted to hire me because I lived in his town. Wow. And so I think I had that going for me. I think also that he had kind of seen me grow up at the airport because I was out there all the time. And he would see me just about every time that he would come and get in his airplane to go somewhere. Uh, I think all those things contributed to allowing me to get that job. Yeah. Um, So he was very, very instrumental in giving me a break. Um, I flew three different airplane types for him. He also had a helicopter that I got to fly with him a little bit. Oh, cool. Um, so that was pretty neat. I never got a helicopter rating out of it, although he did offer me a helicopter rating. He says, I can get you a helicopter rating or a raise. <laughs> and I was, you know, uh, hurting at the time. And I was like, I think I need the money. Yeah. In hindsight, I kind of wished I'd have done the helicopter thing because that would have been another nice rating to have. Yeah. And I think I could have gotten the raise as well. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit further down the line. But I flew a 421 for him, went to flight safety, learned to fly the 421. Um, Six months later, he sold the 421 and we started uh, renting or leasing a Cessna Conquest, the small one, the 425 with the PT6 engines on it. Went to flight safety to learn to fly that. Uh, We rented or leased that for about 18 months. And then uh, that deal dried up, so to speak. And then he became partners in a King Air. And so then I got to go to flight safety to learn to fly a King Air C-90, and I flew that for him for about a year. And I had gotten to know the mechanics and the management people at the Cessna dealer in Fresno because they had worked on my airplane that I was flying for Mr. Perry, and they'd worked on it quite a bit. And I felt that I wanted to go to work for them in order to develop um, more friendships with those people um, that... I could say that I had worked at this place and uh, I felt that it was something that was good for my future to be able to have that history with them. And that has really paid off. Um, I felt bad leaving Mr. Barry. He wasn't happy uh, when I left. He said, you know, I've spent an awful lot of money on you and, uh, you know, I don't necessarily want you to leave. One of the big problems with working for him is he didn't pay very well. Hmm. Um, that being said, going to work for the Cessna dealer there, I didn't make much more money than I was making for him, but I was again flying the Conquest, which I liked better than the King Air. It had better performance. It wasn't as nice a handling airplane, but it had better performance. And I enjoyed flying that airplane quite a bit. So I flew Conquest again for the Cessna dealer there in Fresno. I worked there about, I want to say 18 months or so. Um, there was a new FBO going up on the field. And at the time, I didn't know this, but Mr. Barry was the money behind it. Ah. And the president of this uh, FBO that I had gone to work for, he had left to go be the president of this new FBO. And I kind of surmised after learning that Mr. Barry was being the money behind it and that Mr. Wilson uh, was going to be the president of it, that once the building got up, you know, erected and was ready to open that they were going to rob all of the talent out of the place that I was working at. And that is exactly what happened. And in, there was a huge lawsuit over it. I was um, subpoenaed to come in and testify about it. Oh, wow. uh, they felt that I was a very unique person as far as this lawsuit was concerned, because I had worked for Mr. Barry. I had worked for the executive wings place that um, all the talent had been robbed out of. And, um, I had apparently some testimony that they were very interested in. Um, The lawsuit is a whole other story that we don't really need to get into. Basically, I saw that the writing was on the wall that I was, this place is no longer going to be in business after a couple of years. And my friend at the Air National Guard, Mike Cody, had suggested that I really need to come to work at West Air United Express, and that's how I wound up going to work over there. I, I could see the place I was working at was failing. West Air was growing and, and an up and coming thing, and they had uh, graduated from Bondaranis to Brasilias. They uh, also were getting uh, BAE 146s, which is the four engine high wing jet, and all under the United Express banner. And I saw that airline grow from operating Cessna 402s to Bondaranis and shorts to Brasilias to. Bach jets and thinking this place is really going places and they've come a long way since I saw them first operating and I ended up going to work there and I was there about five years. Um, There were quite a few ups and downs. I was a Bondurani first officer then a Bondurani captain. Bondurani is an EMB 110 for those of you that don't know it was Embraer's first airliner. A lot of times when I uh, i'm asked you know what did you fly at united express i'll say the emb 110 and a lot of the young people will say you mean the 120 and i'm like no i mean the 110 <laughs> i'm like well what's that <laughs> yeah i said it's the only um embrair airliner that did not have motorcycle bar handles Motorcycle you know, handles, and bars. you got me on that
0: too i remember you asked me uh not too long ago i flew the 110 i was, looked at you funny and <laughs> do you know what that is do you mean the one twenty? <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. Only airliner that Embraer built that didn't have motorcycle handlebars for the control wheel. Yeah. Um it was a good training airplane. It was a good airplane to build experience on. Um, it was a little bit miserable in that it had air cycle machines that didn't work very well. It was unpressurized. Um, and so it was hot in the summer and cold in the winter. A lot of the pilots um, wore battery-powered socks that had heaters in them. Oh, my God. (laughs) We would wait till 500 feet on final to put the gear down because as soon as you put the gear down, there was a huge blast of cold air that would come into the cockpit by your feet. (laughs) Um, But it was a good, solid airplane. Um, It was very reliable. And, you know, a PT-6-powered airplane is just about bulletproof anyway. Uh, Then the airline... um, Negotiated with British Aerospace and took delivery of about thirty uh, Jetstream aircraft, and they retired the Bondurani fleet. And I went from being a, a Bondurani captain to being a Jetstream captain. Um, flew that for about a year, and then the recession of '92 happened, and the airline started to implode on itself. And I went from being a captain on the Jetstream to a first officer on the Brasilia. Uh, did that for about two years. Um, Vern, my uh, mechanic uh, mentor that I worked for, he had also gone to work for United Express. Uh, he worked in the training department, and he did my jet stream training. And so that was the only other time that I got to fly with Vern after doing my private pilot license. Um, I had done my instrument rating with another instructor because at the time, Vern didn't have a double I, um, and then I did my commercial license at an FBO in Fresno because we didn't have a multi-engine aircraft uh, available to us in Madeira. Um, but when I transitioned from the Bandit to the Jetstream, uh, Vern Lund was my uh, instructor on that, and so that was really fun it was and small unique. World. It's like we've come full circle. Yeah, but we've come full circle three times since that. Wow. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, and you were telling me that, uh, so while you were working at West Air in 89, you started there, you also transitioned learning a new trade.
1: Well, when I went to work for United Express, it was a cut in pay from what I had been doing, um, especially, you know, going from the left seat of a turboprop uh, corporate-type aircraft to the first officer position on a Bondurani. Um This was 1989. Uh, at the time, this United Express carrier had a 95-hour guarantee, and first officer pay in a Banderani was eleven dollars an hour.
0: Oh, can you imagine? Hey, I'm flying in a, a turboprop around and making eleven bucks an hour. That's captains made nineteen. Oh, oh my god! I mean, <laughs> you know, granted, we have to you know keep into consideration the, the year and uh, things like that, but still, that's not a lot of money.
1: No, it. Um, effectively, was about a 50% cut in pay. I think that when I was working for the Cessna dealer, I was making about 25000 a year, and I went from that to about 13000 a year working uh, for United Express. So I needed another job to make ends meet. And at that time, my friend Vern uh, still was operating an FBO in Madeira and as a mechanic, and I approached him and said, you know, I realize that you're working... Uh, in the training department here at United Express. You're also still running the shop in Madeira. Do you know I need a part-time job? Do you think I could come back to work for you as a mechanic? And he said, yeah, that's fine. Said, so I worked for him for about three months doing that to try to you know make some extra money, and he decided to shut down the shop. There was another person that was interested in buying it, and he wanted to get out of it because it was too much time on his part to have to do both jobs and the new person coming in I didn't know and I didn't necessarily you know want to work for him and fortunately for me there was an avionics shop next door that needed somebody because they had just lost a uh, uh, an avionics installer he had gotten a different job in a different career field and so I approached the avionics shop owner That you know, Vern is shutting down the shop next door and I kind of still need a job to make ends meet. Um, I don't know a whole lot about avionics, but I do have an A&P license and I'm willing to learn if you'll hire me. He hired me on the spot. Absolutely. You know, show up tomorrow and we're going to put an intercom in this Blanca Viking. And that was my first job for him was learning how to wire up an intercom and installing it in this airplane. And I had some troubles here and there. You know, I tied wires up too tight and broke connections off. And that's all right. He says, it's a good experience. He says, you won't do that again. And I continued to work for him part-time for about the next 15 years. Um, So all through my career at West Air, United Express, all through my career at Reno Air, and then at the beginning of Legacy Airlines, um, I worked uh, uh, for him uh, doing avionics installations. You've had your hand in multiple pots here, really, from the beginning. I I really have. Um, there's not a whole lot, I guess, in aviation that I haven't, you know, done from the general aviation side of it. Um, you know, one of the things that I think I, you know, might be good at these days is it would be nice to maybe do a designated pilot examiner thing. Um, but I didn't do enough flight instruction um in my earlier career for me to make that a a valid prospect these days. Um, I probably only have two or 300 hours of flight instruction given and the FAA wants a minimum of 500 and they'd like to see recent experience as well. And I just don't really have that.
0: But you know, there's an amazing lesson to be learned from what you've given us so far. And, and what I see in it is, this willingness to continuously keep your options open. And there's been so many times in the past few decades that I've shared a cockpit, usually with a younger individual and, you know, they're complaining, which, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's in our DNA as aviators that we like to complain. Um, And I try to stay away from that. I try to keep the positivity on the highest possible level. And I know you're an individual like that where you know we focus on the positive in life because it's too short to to focus on the negativity but you get these individuals you come across them in the cockpit and they're complaining oh you know i put my resume out and no one's hiring well right now i understand but before this pandemic happened you know they'd say oh it's because i'm a white male uh you know and and if i was uh a person of a minority or a female, I, I get an interview right away because I've got the time. And, and you just listen to these people talk and you're just like nails on a chalkboard. Are you kidding me? And then you ask them a few questions like, so what do you do in your spare time? You know, when, well, I, I, I fly airplanes. You know, I, I'm like, okay, but do you volunteer anywhere? Do you, are you a pilot mentor? Are you part of the LOSA program? I mean, there's so many things a pilot or an aviator can be involved with do you do you talk at elementary schools do you are you willing to give some of your time to the human resources department and become a, there's so much you can do and you don't have to just limit it to items within the profession you can also do other things that would help spark your resume into that higher category to keep it on the top of that stack and it sounds like everything you've always done from the age of 13 14 years old has always been kind of following that that methodology
1: you know and, and I still don't feel like I've done enough you know I think I <laughs> I should be participating in young eagles you know I should be you know out there showing my airplane to people and it's like you know going to schools like you're saying you know I'll fly with um a guy at work that you know, he says, "Oh yeah," he says, "I just you know yesterday went to my my kid's school and you know gave a talk about aviation." I was like, "You know, I should be doing that kind of stuff." Yeah. And then I think like you know, my I seem to do an awful lot. I don't know where I'd find the time to do that, but I still should. Yeah,
0: and, and that's that's what's so great about being able to speak with you, um, is to hear this. You can you can you can feel this this passion, this energy about what you do and, and in every aspect, you know, when we were talking about, you know, working on your aircraft, your airplanes, um, and the connections and the friendships and the pride that you had, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but with the pride that you had, you're showing me the video of your daughter's solo and, and how these friends, these mentors that you've known for 40 years were at the airport cheering her on. That just is amazing. And, you know, I just, I really have to say my hats off to you for that. You know, you mentioned earlier that you transitioned from West Air to Reno Air. How did that transition happen
1: for you? Again, that was Vern Lund that came through for me on that. Um, Vern at the time was out of the training department and flying the line, and he was a jet stream captain. United Express, West Air at the time had changed their overnights and meaning that they were trying to eliminate as many overnight expenses as possible and so rather than having crews based in San Francisco or Fresno or LA or wherever they would have three or four major bases they decided to put all of the pilots in the overnight places so now we had all these mini bases Merced was one of them Um, Modesto and Stockton was one of them Um, San Diego was a base, San Luis Obispo was a base, Santa Barbara was a base, Arcata was a base. We had all these little mini bases, and Vern was based in Merced, which was a fairly short drive for him the other direction. He was living in Madera, so he used to drive to Fresno, now he drove to Merced. Merced was maybe 10 minutes further than it was to go to Fresno Airport to go to work. So he was based in Merced, and there was a pilot there that he flew with. One of his first officers, that also happened to be a weapon system operator in the Air National Guard at Fresno, who flew F-4s in the back seat. Very cool. Uh, this person approached me one day at the Air National Guard and said that you know, me and one of the other WIZOs here, and Wizzo is short for weapon system operator, um, are interested in buying a Cessna 150 to build up our pilot and command time we have convinced the FAA that our backseat time in the F-4 is second-in-command time. And so we want to build some pilot-in-command time so that we might be more competitive to get hired at an airline. Oh, smart. And that was smart. So they said, we know that you're a mechanic. You know, we've, we have asked around, and they said, well, Dave Letourneau over there in the, on the flight line in the crew chief's office, go talk to him. He'd probably be able to help you. So they had a particular airplane in mind, and they asked me if I would go and look at the Cessna 150 for them. And I did. I recommended that they don't buy it, but they bought it anyway. And then I ended up (laughs) doing an annual inspection on it for them. Um, At the time, I was just an ANP. I didn't have inspection authorization. But I had an agreement with Vern Lund that, you know, if I do a 100-hour inspection on the aircraft, um, would he help me with signing off the annual part, part of it? And he would do that. So fast- forward to a couple of years later, uh, this first officer, his name was Mike Carricker he got hired at West Air, and he was junior to me, obviously, because I was a captain on the jet stream, so was Vern. And Mike is flying as a first officer for my friend Vern up in Merced. They're both based up in Merced. We all lived in the Fresno area, but Vern's base was Merced. And Mike was a artist. And he could draw lithographs, I think is the right word. Yeah, lithos. yeah. And Reno Air had started operations in uh, 92. July of 92 is when they started. And his goal was to go to work for that carrier. And he drew a uh, lithograph of an MD-80 painted up in Reno Air colors, stapled his resume to it, and sent it to the chief pilot at Reno Air. Oh, wow. Talk about creative. He got hired. Yeah. So now he is a first officer on the MD-80 at Reno Air, and after he completes training, is on the line, he called Vern. Hey, do you want to go to work at Reno Air? I think I can get you hired. They are big on recommendations from line pilots. And so if I turn in your resume, you will likely get a call. Wow. So Vern tells me this story, and I'm like, oh, my God, I know Mike. I know him better than you do. Um, I worked on his 150, and I knew him out at the Air National Guard. Do you think he would turn in a resume for me? And he says, well, I don't know, but I'll ask him. He says, give me your resume, and I'll give it to him at the same time I give him mine. Cool. Wow. So I did. And sure enough, um, I eventually got a call from Reno Air and invited me to come to an interview. I almost missed it. Um, not the interview, but I almost missed the opportunity to respond. Um, At the time, I had an answering machine at home that was clumsy to operate, and it was clumsy to use. It had one tape in it, and for those of you that don't know about (laughs) answering machines from the um, 90s, they were all on a cassette tape, and the good ones had two cassette tapes, and one of the, uh, the outgoing message was recorded on one of the cassette tapes, and then when the beep went off, you recorded the message on the other cassette tape. Uh, the cheaper units, which somebody had given me for a birthday present because I didn't have an answering machine, and they're like, we're tired of not being able to get a hold of you, so here's an answering machine. Use it. Ah. The, the one tape machines, you would record at one end of the tape, and then during the very long beep... It would rewind all the way to the other end of the tape and start recording from oh the other God. end of the direction. <laughs> so people hated leaving me a message because the beep sometimes, you know, might be forty-five seconds uh-huh. while the tape was rewinding, and then it was, you know, and then it had to find, you know, on that tape where the most recent message had been recorded, and it took a while. And I hated the thing, and so I had didn't turn it on very often because it was clumsy and crunky to use. So I would just leave it turned off. Um, and then I started thinking, I was like, you know, I was sure hoping I would get a call from Reno Air. And it's like, maybe I should turn on that answering machine. Maybe they've been trying to call me. Oh no. I turned on the answering machine and that evening when I got home, there was a message from Reno Air saying, We've been trying to get a hold of you for two weeks. Oh no. If you want to interview, we have one interview slot left on Tuesday at 10 a.m. You need to call us back and tell us if you want it. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I almost missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime here. Yeah. And so I called back right then, as soon as I heard that message. Actually, I think it was the next morning. Yeah, I want that interview slot. Okay. Um, it did cost me a little bit that I didn't, you know, have the answer machine on earlier. Uh, Vern got called as well, and he was given a class date in October. And I was successful in the interview as well. And I was given a class date of November 1st. Now, Vern's class ran on time in October. When they got to my class in November, they canceled the class because the airline was doing poorly. And there's there's a whole other story about how I was notified that the class wasn't going to run, but suffice it to say that the class did eventually run in May of 94. Mm. And that's how I started at Reno Air, um, because of Vern and Mike Carricker. I was successful in getting there. It's all about who you know. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the interview went well. The people that I interviewed with, by the time that I started at Reno Air, they had left and gone somewhere else. I think they went to Midway Airlines because they were from Chicago. Mm. And when that Midway airline started up, and that was Midway Two, um, when that airline started up, those guys went back to Chicago because they didn't want to live in Reno anymore.
0: Yeah, and it's you know we've talked about commuting and airlines, especially uh, you know being new in the industry and having to commute and being on reserve and it's tough. So whenever you can find a job where you can live in base, it is a game changer. It's almost like a different job.
1: Really? I I moved to my current base uh, because the airline shut down the base I was at and I was commuting for about three years and hated it. And an opportunity came up for me to move. And so I did And it is so much nicer to be able to just get in my car and drive to work. I don't give it a second thought about what I bid as far as, uh, the time that you have to show up for work. And when the trip gets done, will I be able to commute home? Like if I get done at midnight, who cares? I go to the parking lot, get in my car and drive home. That's right.
0: You know, and, and there's so much stress on the body when you're pushing, you know, Oh, I gotta, I gotta come in the night before I gotta, you know, get a ride to the crash pad or go to a hotel. And then, you know, okay, you got to check out at the hotel by 11 AM. So that means I got to sit around the airport for a few hours because this and that and another, and, and it's just so nice to just show up, get to the parking lot, you know, with plenty of time to spare, you walk in, grab a cup of coffee, talk to your friends in the crew room or the flight operations. And it's just a completely
1: different, different it, job. It really is. When I was working at Westair, there was about a year period where I was living in Fresno, but based in San Francisco, and I didn't want to drive that, and so I would try to do it on the airline, and the airline had a 6 a.m. departure that was on a Brasilia that went from Fresno to San Francisco, and then there was a 6.30 departure that was on the BAE 146, And that was a 90-passenger airplane versus a 30-passenger airplane in the Brasilia or a 19-passenger Bondurani. And I learned that if the Bokjet broke and it didn't go, there were 90 passengers trying to get on the rest of the flights throughout the day. So I might have a 4 p.m. sign-in, and I would get up in the morning and get on the 6 a.m. flight because that flight was going to go, and if the 630 flight didn't go, it was going to be a problem getting there. Yeah. Now I could have driven it, but my mind didn't think that way back then. It was like, oh, you know, you know, I didn't have anything set up. I didn't have parking privileges at San Francisco. Um, it's like, no, no, no. I got to do this on the airline. Yeah. And it was horribly stressful. And so when I was starting to commute again for the airline that I work for now, I'm like, I don't want to do this, you know. Um, I need to move because it's much less stress on my person. Yeah,
0: yeah. and you mentioned you were at Reno Air for quite some time, and anyone can do like a Wikipedia search and find out the history of Reno Air, Um, but you you were able to fly some pretty cool jets when you were there. You were telling me the MD-80, the MD-90. What were some of your fondest moments flying those aircraft?
1: You know, to be honest, uh, Reno Air was all about the people. The the airplanes were sure nice. Um, A lot of the airplanes were brand spanking new. I picked up a brand new MD-80 at the factory, um, and I also picked up a brand new MD-90 at the factory. And so it's nice to be flying new equipment. Um, One of the things that the airline, you know, tried to use in their advertising was they have one of the youngest fleets in the country. Um, And it was true. A lot of the airplanes were, you know, less than two or three years old. Um, we got five brand new MD nineties. Um, and when I started, I took my check ride in an MD 80 that was probably less than three months old at the time. Wow. So pretty nice to fly brand new equipment. But the thing about working at Reno Eras is, is that you were friends with everybody. Um, I couldn't wait to go to work to see all my friends. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, probably the best job I ever had as far as job satisfaction goes. It didn't pay very well, but I I couldn't wait to go to work. It was so much fun.
0: Yeah, and you were telling me that in in November of 1998, Reno Air was bought out by an airline that we affectionately call here at Squawk Ident Legacy Airlines, our current employer. Uh, That transition, you know, usually when an airline gets bought out by another airline, it it creates a little bit of difficulty. You know, how does that process work? Did you find it? a kind of a a contentious time? Um,
1: It it was just different. Um, We were brought to Reno after, you know, it was announced that the airline was going to be bought by another carrier and went to the training department to try to learn some of their procedures. And what the airline did is the new airline, the purchasing airline, um, came to our training department and says, you know, show us what you've been doing. And then they brought our Czech airmen to their training department and said, this is how we're going to do it. And so now you are trained on the way we do things. You take this information and go back to your training department and bring your pilots to Reno and teach them our way of doing things. And so we did that um, with the admonition, don't do this on the line until August 31st, and then forget everything you knew, about Reno Air and start doing it the new way. <laughs> and it was um it was a little bit of a cluster. Um yeah. you know, at the time the airline had what was called a red book and it had all of the operating information in it as to how the airline wanted you to fly the airplane. Yeah. And we'd have the Red Book out during the flare trying to see if we were making the right calls. Oh no. <laughs> so it was a little <laughs> bit comical. Um you know there were things that we didn't know how to do. Um In those days, we had to print the release. And at Reno Air, it was simply a matter of going into operations and picking up the paperwork. And it was about three, eight and a half by 11 pages at Reno Air. And then clipped to that was also a weight and balance form that had been partially filled out. And the first officer would do the weight and balance um, just as the door was closing. And then we'd tear off uh, a copy of it and hand it to the gate agent. And they'd walk out the airplane and shut the door. Yeah. Um, at the new airline, um, we had to print a release and it was about 15 pages, eight and a half by 11. And it was on a printer that was a dot matrix printer. And as captains, that was our responsibility to print that thing out. And so it was my first day and it's all right, I'm here. And I, you know, had my little cheat sheet and this is the entry I need to make into the computer and there's the printer and okay, here we go. And so I typed the entry and press enter. And it printed out about half of it. And uh-huh. I'm like, where's the TPS? Where's all of this stuff? It's like, why is this not working? Yeah. I tried it again. Same result. So then it's like, all right, I'm gonna have to call the dispatcher because I can't get this thing to do like I expect it to do. And so I I called the guy up and I said, I can't get the release to print. You know, I'm a new I'm a Reno Air, I don't know how to do this. And uh, he says, Well, let me try it. Let me see what happens when I try it here in in, you know, Fort Worth and yeah. um SOC. So he says, okay, he says, I'm typing the entry, you know, JP display space flight number slash SNA. Because I was at Orange County. That was my first flight I was going to be out there. Shift enter. I'm like, oh, oh what? What? Shift enter? So I'm uh- pressing enter. <laughs> oh, no, you got to press shift and then enter. And you yeah. hold, press shift first <laughs> and then enter. Nobody had ever taught us that. Yeah. I mean, it was those little kinds of things that was frustrating. And then... You know, we get out to the end of the runway and, you know, we were taught, okay, if you are over, you know, assume temperature or over, you know, max temperature or, or not temperature, but uh, weight that you're going to have to get a new TPS. Mm-hmm. The airplane didn't have printers in them. It's like, how do we get this information? Well, you're going to call operations and then operations is going to call um, Fort Worth at SOC and they're going to read the numbers over the radio to you. Um, Well, at John Wayne, every takeoff um, is a max power takeoff. There is no assumed temperature leaving out of that airport. right? And so we get to the end of the runway, we're 500 pounds overweight. So it's like, well, okay, here we go. We call operations, they call Fort Worth and... Here comes the numbers over the radio. And so after just about every flight being that way, the company sends out a memo saying, you know, this isn't working. You guys can't be calling every time. You need to look up the numbers yourself. The numbers are in the performance, man. You'll get the book out and look them up. And I'm like, my God, it was so much easier the way we used to do this. Why is all of this a big deal? <laughs> you know, it's, I, I've got to admit,
0: I've, had an unfair advantage over the years because my first airline job uh, as we've mentioned before here on the show was at a regional that we affectionately call sandpiper um air and the regional the wholly owned to legacy airline at the time and everything was from day one trained to use DEX, to use this as-400 system is Res and Dex? Is that what it was system. called? As four hundred. Well, As four hundred is like the parent, because uh, that's what we used at my former job when I was working uh, a decade in retail management for uh, Costco Wholesale. Um, they used that system. Um, it's an IBM kind of base system, and the uh, Dex is a saber the saber system is what uh, yeah, legacy calls... and... yeah so they use they use that terminal on the saber system those uh but the platform is called as400 I believe... i've never heard that term uh, i before. believe so that i believe that's uh either a sister platform or it sure is archaic terminal. yeah it's very archaic um it's like freaking tetris uh or uh, what was that uh, game that we yeah, used pong to... pong yeah <laughs> or that, that little tennis game where you have the paddles on the TV and the RCA cables but uh but yeah, this so this saber system that uh, and you had to learn the codes, and I had in my little pocket logbook that I still to this day use and carry. I don't do electronic, which is a topic for an entire other show, I guess, but I in the back of that, I had a little crypt sheet with all those codes, and I've made the exact same you know, issues where, oh, what's the code? And, you know, shift, enter, uh, tab, control. What do you mean display? What's the display? Oh, you mean the asterisks? Why don't they just say asterisks? You know, so. Exactly. You know, and we had red (laughs) Or Cross
1: of Lorraine. That's my favorite. Oh, jeez,
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, uh, they called it, as a shortcut, they called it change. So instead of Cross of Lorraine, they change, change, and then dex, and then press enter, and then shift, and then, oh, oh, God. So it's funny to hear now, 20 years later, I fly with guys that were at other carriers that were since merged in with legacy. And they're like, Oh, this, you know, stupid, uh, legacy uh, airlines have been using this thing since the seventies. And why can't they just get it <laughs> make it easy and get a windows based thing? So it's funny to hear, um, uh, all, all the little nuances that, that you and many, uh, really struggled with everybody goes through
1: that when they come to work for this airline. Yeah. Um, they, they still use that as the base and anything that they have developed since still is a shell for saber. Yeah. Because they own that, that
0: company. So why pay a software manufacturer, a software developer to, to create something that works? It works well. It doesn't crash very often. Um, so, you know, you hear sometimes uh, other airlines, uh, oh, their reservation system or their ticketing system went down and so for a few hours throughout a particular day, you know, all the flights were delayed. Or delayed. Canceled. And then you also mentioned something very interesting. When I first started at Sandpiper Regional, uh, we also had to fill out the manual weight and balance form. And you know, we sat there just private pilot 101 stuff. You had to take this this uh, carbon copy, uh, 2 or 3 page um form and you had to put in you know your end number and your weight and the basic uh empty operating weight of the aircraft which was from the inside of the maintenance log that's in the aircraft and you had to fill out what's the, the cg And then, okay, how many passengers do you have? And and what zone are they in? Zone A, zone B, zone C. And then you had, okay, what's the baggage count? So you had to get the baggage count. And then you had to figure out, okay, how many regular bags do we have? How many heavy bags do we have? And then you okay, how many children are in the count and what zone are they? And so you're sitting here as an FO, filling all this out. And the first time you do it, it literally takes you two hours to do it. And you're like, how the hell am I gonna do this in an airplane on a 25 or 30 minute turn? And you want me to hand do this and up until the point where i left the company uh two and a half years ago anytime you diverted you had to fill out even though we had the the tps that comes out of now the printer in the cockpit that's generated from the program uh that they use in soc if you diverted and you landed at an unscheduled airport Before you left that airport, they'd hand you a manual weight and balance and guess what? You had to fill it out. And if you haven't filled one out in two or three years or since your initial training (laughs) 10 years or 13 years prior, you were looking at each other like, "Um, do you remember how to fill one of these out? (laughs) And you had to call SOC and go, it's been a couple of years. Can you help me fill this out? (laughs) And they're like, well, I don't know. Let me open the book. I don't know. I don't remember how to do that.
1: (laughs) It's funny. I I never gave it much of a uh, thought, but I mean, my entire career at, at West Air United Express, 5 years every airplane I flew we did those by you know manually yeah and Reno Air the whole time I was there we did it manually it was only until you know I started working at this airline that it was done for you yeah
0: and I remember that transition too uh it actually started the electronic weight and balance started to be an option right as I was getting hired in 2006 and it was because some stations allegedly were fudging the numbers to get more people on. So they would put less bag, they'd give you the bag count, and then when you got to your destination, they'd open the door, and there were twice as many bags as they indicated. I think every airline's gone through that problem. You know, and they're like, well, we got to get the people on. You know, don't worry about it. It's fine. Well, then the FAA got wind of it, and now, there's a big investigation, a and yeah. and of course the company... Was like, okay, we're going to go electronic. There is no way to fudge these numbers. Every bag is scanned. That's why they put those stickers on your bags when you check in with the barcode, because your bag is scanned. Heavy bags get a different barcode, obviously. Um, and so the human factor of giving me the numbers was pulled out of the equation. And now we were getting everything electronic printed out. We still are responsible to verify these numbers. But really, there was no more manual weight and balance.
1: I remember at Reno, some of the pilots, um, being upset because the FAA would come in and occasionally audit the weight and balances. And if they were wrong, then it became an investigation. And some of the pilots, you know, were being investigated for operating flights with inaccurate weight and balances. And they had taken off over, you know, max takeoff weight. And, you know, all of a sudden it's a big deal. And, and the thought process was that if we could only get a computer involved and take the pilot out of the equation, then it would shift to somebody else's responsibility.
0: Yeah. yeah. Every airplane had the, the whiz wheel in it. The, it's a plastic board with a rotating calculator. And you had to, okay, align and go, okay, how many passengers do I have in zone A? So you'd spin the wheel. Just like a,
1: an E6B, really. I, I remember that on the jet stream. Um, When I went to Reno Air, they used a weighted average, um, and it had, somehow they had the CG built into the numbers. And when the last two digits were the CG, and so the passenger weight might be, you know, so many thousands of pounds, but the last two numbers were um, a center of gravity number. And when you added all the numbers up at the end, the very last box would be the aircraft's, center of gravity expressed in the mean aerodynamic cord nice and so there was no whiz wheel the only aer- ever flew that had a whiz wheel was a jet stream and it was kind of cool
0: yeah yeah so man talk about blast from the past i was man. gonna say man this brings back some memories <laughs> some i hadn't thought about in a long memories. time whiz wheel <laughs> that's that's the great thing about doing this this podcast is i get to sit down with you know amazing aviators amazing individuals and you know we we learn about them and their stories. And, you know, again, I just want to say thank you for, for sharing your story with us. And it's amazing how all these memories come back and we get to reminisce really about some times, not, not too far, not ago, too far removed, you know? Yeah. Um, at this point in the, in the podcast, i really would like to spend some time asking just a quick, a couple Q and A's on, you know, some of the the things that you've dealt with in all of your years of experience. Uh, And let's start out that section with, uh, you know, what's been the most significant driving factor for you in this pursuit of a career in aviation?
1: Um, I think I enjoy the hand flying of the airplane. Um, So that drives me because it's enjoyable to try to put the airplane on the ground without feeling it. Um, That's a big part of it for me. Um, and just the satisfaction of trying to do the job well
0: yeah, and I think that really does show often in, in especially at this level in the game, once you get to an airline, even a regional, you know, taking pride in the quality of the ride, the quality of what you're giving your passengers in the back, um really does separate. Those aviators that, to this day, I mean, I fly occasionally with captains here at Legacy, and I'm like, are you hot-dogging it? What's going on here? They're like, oh, it's a visual approach. So they're coming in, you know, nice, steep bank, base to final, and I'm thinking, well, this isn't your Cessna. <laughs> You're not in the pattern at your home airport. You're, you've got 180-plus people back there, grandmas back there, kind of looking at the ground out of the right side of the airplane. Why? You know, there's no need for it. So, no, it does does make a big difference when you're um, taking pride in the quality of the ride. And I think uh, Barry Skiff, uh, a famous writer uh, for Flying Magazine and AOPA uh, Magazine, uh, he writes wonderful articles every month for AOPA, which I've been reading now for a good couple decades. And he wrote an article years ago that I ripped out and put in a drawer, and I, to this day, still have it. And he talks about the perfect flight and how it's not possible. There is no such thing as a perfect flight. No one has ever achieved it. It doesn't matter if you're Chuck Yeager or not. There's just no way you're going to achieve the perfect flight. However, there is a clear distinction between pilots that strive for that perfect flight on every flight and those that don't. Um, So, wow, great. My hat's off to you. That's, I do the same. I mean, we've talked about this before too. I do the same. I try to make every flight be the best flight possible. Uh, many. Prefer- I could do better. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> don't beat yourself up, Dave. You're you're doing all right. <laughs> so you've had a long career that continues to progress and and have really wonderful strides in it. What's been the biggest challenge so far that you've had to overcome?
1: I I probably have to say that I was concerned early on that I wasn't hireable um, because I'd had a violation on my record. And uh, I got a 90-day license suspension for buzzing a lake in a Cessna 150 (laughs) in, uh, I think it was 1981, and I thought, this is going to hurt me for the rest of my life. And it was something that I brought up during the interview at Reno Air because I wanted to make sure they knew about it. and. Fortunately for me, they're like, that's a long time ago. We don't care about that. Um, but that was a big deal for me to try to, you know, overcome that. It's like, I, I, you know, think that that was going to really hurt me for a long time. Yeah. Um,
0: well, it's, uh, and it's amazing. So you buzz the lake when you're a very young aviator. We've all done kind of these kind of things. I mean, I had my first flight instructor uh, ask me one time, you ever seen a cow duck? And I knew
1: (laughs) this was not going to be good. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, (laughs) One one of the things that I will say about that is that I was young at the time and it uh, didn't really change my attitude until later. But when I see friends, you know, doing dumb things, I speak up now. Um, I had a buddy that uh, took a bird strike in his 182 because he was buzzing his buddy's house oh! and I'm like you know if you hadn't done that stupid thing you probably wouldn't have had the bird strike yeah um, I said you know there is no reason to do things like that and I said you know I got in trouble for that years ago and here you are you haven't learned from my mistakes and you knew that I did that it's like don't do that kind of stuff just don't do it you know, and you're and thank you for sharing that with us
0: how the heck did you get caught <laughs>
1: Uh, the park rangers uh, saw the N number on the side of the plane and called it in.
0: Oh, wow. And, and we all know that there are rules about uh, different airspace and how low you can fly. Uh, and, you know, 1,000 feet above any populated
1: area, and what was it 500 feet? 500 feet from any person, vessel, or structure within a 2,000-foot horizontal radius. Now you've got that <laughs> to the letter, my friend, to the
0: letter. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, uh, many professional aviators have learned firsthand how very difficult it can be to juggle the conflicting demands between their personal and their professional lives. What do you believe is your secret in balancing the demands of a family life and an aviation schedule?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, A lot of pilots really struggle with this one, and and I'm no exception. I've I've been married twice, um, and I'm in a relationship now where I constantly hear that, you know, I don't spend enough time at home. And so it's uh, making a conscientious decision that you need to spend the quality time with your family and that you're going to do it. Yeah, and I've I ask this question quite often because
0: we all struggle from this. Any professional aviator that's been doing this long enough will tell you that it is always a struggle, especially with loved ones. Uh, I heard it said once, and you just reminded me of that. uh, That a woman was asked, a a wife was asked of an aviator. You know, how is it? You know, having your husband being gone all the time, and she says, "Well, I've come to terms with the realization that my husband's first love." Is flying and I will always be his second <laughs> and although that was kind of a, a little bit of a shock to hear and I've heard this many many years ago um, it really is kind of a, a telling reality of of what most aviators do go through I mean we we love doing what we do um, and that sometimes can create a problem uh, so yeah juggling juggling that time with home um, and making sure that you do set a time set aside that time so when you are home you are present um is definitely thank you for sharing that
1: i could do better at it i'm sure most people could do better at it yeah um,
0: anyone that says they can't do better at it i i, I don't believe them <laughs> <laughs> what's been your favorite aircraft hmm.
1: well i would have to say that as far as airliners go is probably the 757 uh, followed closely behind by the MD-90. Um, small airplanes, um, which is probably more my passion than than airliners. Um, it's hard to beat a beach bonanza. They handle very nicely. Um, I like Cessna 210s, and I have a 182RG that I like very much. So probably in that order. Yeah. Um, and, and it's all pretty much about handling characteristics. I, I like the performance of the 210. Um, you know, it's a fast airplane, it's it handles truck like, um, so it doesn't have very, great handling characteristics, but you know, you make your peace with that. Um, you know, it, if I had things to do over again, I might've bought a pit special instead of a 182RG cause it'd be nice to do some aerobatics and yeah. have some fun doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That we've, uh,
0: known people, uh, my family and I that, that have owned the pits and we've I've never been in a, on a ride in one of them uh but
1: well oh worth going gosh. and getting one
0: you know there's an acrobatic box not far from my house and in that box usually on the weekend we hear it and you know my wife will say, hey, come outside. He's in the box today. And I look up and there's a, a pit's doing all kinds of acrobatic work, and, and it, which is tough in the LA basin to, to find these acrobatic boxes. But if you're in the, uh, in the Rancho Cucamonga area, uh, north uh, of the 210, there's a few acrobatic boxes over there that uh, can entertain uh, quite a bit uh, just by sitting there watching. So you've been doing this for a while. And you've been a captain, you know, many times for multiple airlines. What's been your biggest pet peeve in the cockpit?
1: Probably um, a first officer who is overbearing and thinks he's the captain. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's not you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You run into a few of those people at every airline. Yeah. you know, difficult people in the cockpit, there's probably my biggest pet peeve. And I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I'm pretty easy to get along with, um, especially at work. And for me to not like somebody is pretty rare. Yeah, I would attest to that. Um, very
0: easygoing, uh, which is part of the, the wonderful things that make flying with you so much fun. Um, you know, we, we really have a good time. We laugh quite a bit uh, when we fly together. And you mentioned, you know, people that are hard to handle. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with conflicting personalities when you're on the flight deck?
1: You know, as a first officer, I pretty much just shut down. Um, and as the captain, I just, um I'm quiet. Um, you know, I, <laughs> you just do the job and there's no, you know, interaction outside of the job. You know, it's this checklist and whatever. And it's like, you know, you sit over there and do your thing and I'm going to do mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then there's probably a better way to handle it, Um, but I don't know what it is. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's common uh, for people to handle conflicting personalities by shutting down. Um, And I'm absolutely guilty of it, too. It's like sterile cockpit. Okay. I'll just go back to, uh, you know, reading the chart here and... Taking a look at my position, and <laughs> if something happens, where are we going to land? Let me find an airport. Uh, so, I'm constantly <laughs> looking at if you find me uh, constantly looking at my, uh, my charts to figure out where we are and, and where a good uh, airport is in case we have an emergency right now, that's probably because I'm just trying to keep my mind busy.
1: <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think every first officer hates is showing up to work and finding that the captain feels that it's time to administer a check ride. Oh, yeah. What are the start limitations on the APU? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, really? I, yeah. I'm just going to start the damn thing. And we still have those.
0: I've flown yeah. with a few. Um, I think I've, I've had that opportunity to kind of turn that around because I, I've realized that people, when they have that kind of personality where they're, they're testing you constantly, um, sometimes it's because they're compensating
1: because i've heard that explained that way before you know too. they're
0: they're trying to show that they're smarter than you um and other times they're just trying to uh submit that they're the authority in the cockpit because they have the fourth stripe and that's fine um so i usually push back a little bit not that i become overbearing but i i go oh yeah well what do you think of this da, da, da. you know and, and i'm i'm a pretty sharp cat you know i i can hold my own most of the time And I found that when you push back a little bit and you don't let it get to you and you don't kind of break down in that scenario and just remain quiet and silent and kind of like a a puppy, but instead you're, you're biting back and barking back. Uh, usually they kind of chill out and totally have some respect for you.
1: You know, I agree. Um, when it's more of a personality issue rather than the check airman type attitude. Mm, True. Um, you know, there there are people that are overbearing personalities. There's one pilot in particular where we work that everybody knows who he is, that I can deal with him just fine because I do exactly what you said. I push back and I banter with him and tell him he's a jerk and, <laughs> and he respects that. But he's not the guy that's asking, you know, for the starting limitations on the APU or the... What's the max temperature? What's the max crosswind? It's like some things, of course, we all know because you have to know them. But it's like, really? You know, it's like I'm not here to take a check ride. Right. You don't need to test me.
0: <laughs> you know, you've been doing this a long time. Multiple, multiple types on aircraft. Multiple positions of PIC. What has been the scariest moment in your aviation career while
1: flying? Hmm. Had a couple engine failures and single engine airplanes. Oh. Um, so those are um, certainly interesting. Um, I had a, uh, I would have to say that all of them were self-induced in one way or another. I have a great little story about flying a Cessna 150 where I was practicing for a ribbon cutting contest where you go up to about 5,000 feet and you unroll a, roll of toilet paper about three or four feet, and then you open the window and throw it out. And then it all unravels, and it becomes this big, long streamer with the roll of you know the cardboard at the bottom of it. And after you throw it out the window, you count to five, and then you kind of do a big wing over and come back and try to find it and slice it with your wing. Oh. You heard of those?
0: I have heard of those, but I've kay. never
1: seen it done. Um, so I wanted to participate in a contest where that was going to be one of the activities was ribbon cutting. There was also flower bombing and balloon busting and spot landing at this contest. The ribbon cutting was pretty fun, and so I'm going to go out and practice this. And I cut the ribbon the first time, but I was pretty close to the fuselage when I hit the ribbon the first time, and some of it uh, got caught up in the prop wash of the airplane as I went by it. And when I turned around to cut it a second time, instead of it being a big long streamer, it was now all wadded up, and it was moving around, and it looked pretty cool. And I saw that, and I thought, like, I'm going to center punch that thing. I'm going to fly right <laughs> through that. Oh, no. <laughs> it was a really bad idea <laughs> because as soon as I went through it, the engine started running really rough. And it's like, holy smokes. You know, I must have gotten some cover in the carburetor, the air filter for the carburetor. So I'm like, oh, I'm smart. I'm going to turn on carburetor heat. And that'll fix it because that's an alternate air source. So I pulled on carburetor heat, and it got worse. And I'm like, "Oh, this did not. This is not going like I expected." So then I thought, "Okay, um, maybe I'll try leaning the mixture a little bit." Nothing made any difference. And so then I'm thought like, "You know, where am I? Where's the airport? Can I get back to it?" And I opened the throttle wide open, and I could get about 1,700 RPM out of the engine, and it was shaking pretty good. And I was trying leaning it. And it's like, man, the airport is probably at least six miles away. What is around here? And I remembered that right where I was at, and I was pretty sure it was right behind me, there was a housing development that was never built, but all the roads were put in. And it's like, I could go land on one of those roads. And so I turned around, and sure enough, it was right behind me. So I'm like, oh, man, I'm saved. Full flaps, dump it down, come in, land, land on this road out in the middle of uh, the country. And so I get out of the airplane and there's toilet paper all over the airplane. There's toilet paper on the hanging off of the prop, toilet paper hanging off of the horizontal stabilizer. Sure enough, there's some covering the carburetor air filter. So I cleaned it out from everywhere that I could find it. Get back in the airplane and start it up and it still runs rough. And so I well, this still isn't working right. And I get out of the airplane and now some guy and his wife are walking across a field towards me because there was one or two houses that were there from the beginning of when they started to do this uh, development i don't even know if there's any houses there to this day but the roads are still there um and he you know kind of walks over and says like you know you all right you know and i'm like oh yeah i'm fine just have a little engine problem with my
0: plane <laughs> fancy
1: and uh, he's like well you know can i do anything to help and uh, i'm like you know do you have a screwdriver that maybe I could take the cowling off of the engine so that I can look around and see if I can find something? And he's like, you know, my, I don't have anything, but I think my neighbor does. Cause like I said, there were two houses next to each other. And they're the only two houses for miles. We go over to his neighbor's house and um, go back to his camper in his backyard. And he produces a, a bent Phillips screwdriver. And here you can use this one <laughs> and a wooden handle with half of the wood missing. And I'm like, well, Beggars can't be choosers. This will yeah. work. So I go out there and I take the cowling all off and there's more toilet paper, you know, on the engine. Um, and I'm, you know, looking at all of this stuff and it's like, you know, at the time I was still a mechanics helper and I had a private license and it's like, I'm knowing in the back of my head that none of this stuff should be making this engine run bad. So, but I'm persistent. It's like, all right, I'm going to get in and start it up again. Maybe it'll be fine this time. Get it in and run it up and it still runs bad. So now I take the uh, carburetor air filter off, and I look up in the carburetor air box, and I don't see anything in there. And I got to thinking, like, "How, how can this happen? You know, what might be going on here? And it's like, I turned the carburetor heat on. Is it possible that the toilet paper went into the unfiltered inlet and then went around the muffler and then through the tube to the inlet to the carburetor at the carburetor airbox. Is that really possible? And so I even took the little shroud off of the muffler. And sure enough, I could see toilet paper in there that was burnt. I'm like, wow, it really did get into this as well. Wow. And uh, so I took that toilet paper out, full well knowing that, you know, this still wouldn't make it run bad. But I got in the plane and started it up again, and it still ran bad. So this time... I thought, I'm going to look harder in that carburetor air box. So I took the air filter off again in front of the airbox, and I stuck my hand in there and up into the throat of the carburetor with my two fingers, and I could feel a square of toilet paper up there in the throat of the carburetor. Oh, wow. And I'm like, aha, I've got it. So I squeezed my two fingers together and pulled this soaking wet with gas piece of toilet paper out of the carburetor and threw it on the ground. And I'm like, I found it. I got in the airplane, started it up, and it ran just fine. So I put the air filter back on, cowled it all back up, handed the guy a screwdriver and said, you want to go for a ride? (laughs) And he's like, oh, I don't know about that. It's like, is it safe? I'm like, yeah, you saw me. I ran it again just now. It runs fine now. And his wife, I couldn't believe it. His wife says, go ahead, honey. You'll love it. (laughs) So sure enough, this guy gets in the airplane with me. I take off from this road, circle around his house a couple of times, come back and land, open the door, let him out. Thanks a lot, man. (laughs) Took off and flew back home. That is so great. So that was kind of a fun story, you know, about an engine failure that I caused yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, that worked out pretty good. So
0: the initial engine running rough was the the air filter box being yeah, blocked, it, and then when you pulled the carb heat, it got worse it sucked because more it, into the the throttle it went body into the throat and, of the
1: carburetor yeah. instead of just covering the air filter. Wow. <laughs> so, so anyway, don't do that.
0: Yeah. Don't don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> That's great. So you've been flying and you've done some great layovers in some amazing cities. What's been your favorite so far?
1: Well, um, when I worked at Reno Air, we used to have an awful lot of fun on Orange County overnights. So I have really great memories of there because we would have typically uh, three or four crews a night at the same hotel. And we all knew each other. And... Some of the crews would come in earlier in the day. Um, some of them would come in later. Um, we used to get into the hotel on Bristol Avenue there in Costa Mesa that had a bus stop right out in front of the hotel. And we would all go down and get on that bus. You know, maybe my whole crew, five of us, so two pilots and three flight attendants, we'd get on that bus and we'd go to Newport Beach and sit on the beach all day. Uh, we'd bring beer with us. You're not supposed to drink on the beach, but we did. And then probably at about five in the afternoon, we would uh, go to a restaurant called Mutt Lynch's and go in there and shoot some pool and have some dinner, maybe have another beer. And then we'd get on the uh, last bus home back to the hotel at about 10 o'clock at night, Uh, get up in the morning and maybe fly from John Wayne up to San Francisco and back to Orange County and then up to San Jose, back to Orange County, spend the night again and do it all over again. Wow. (laughs) So. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. Um, and it, it was, it was neat that we, you know, figured out how to do these different, uh, places and things to do. But the fun, the part that made it fun was, is that we knew everybody and we all had the same goal as to like, let's go enjoy our time here together. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems to be different at a much larger airline. Um, you know, the flight attendants go to a different hotel, um, you know it's usually just you and the first officer and and are you going to do something together you're going to do your own thing and it typically is somebody that you just met right and uh, you may not ever and you see might not again. ever see him again yeah so when you have
0: 15,000 pilots uh spread across the entire country it's tough
1: yeah um as far as destinations um i like boston um i like washington dc um, and that's probably one of the reasons I'm on this trip is because I like this area. Um, you know, I, there, there are certain places that aren't so much fun. <laughs> I got stuck for 36 hours in Odessa, Texas over Christmas. That wasn't a very enjoyable, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but we made the best out of it. Yeah. You know, the first officer and I went across the parking lot to a uh, restaurant that was open. Thank God <laughs> on Christmas Eve. And then we went again on Christmas day. Oh yeah. wow. What's the Chinese? No, it wasn't Chinese. Chinese. <laughs> it was a steakhouse like salt grass or something like that. Oh, that's
0: cool. <laughs> so, if you can go back in time just for a moment and whisper in the ear of your younger self, what would you tell yourself?
1: Yeah, don't buzz that lake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a given. <laughs> and so, young, there's so many young aviators that, you know, up until recently have been just getting ready at full steam ahead for this aviation career, you know, flight training at full steam ahead. And all of a sudden it all kind of stopped. Um, Things will get better. We will get back to it. It may take a lot longer than originally we, we thought this would take to kind of get over this pandemic and and this, you know, economic, I hate to say destruction, but it really is a a destruction to our economy, not just here in the U S but around the world. And that's the difference here is it's not something that it just affects us. Uh, this is not just a political issue. This is, you know, a world health issue and, but it will pass. It will get better. We will adopt uh, new ways of dealing with this virus and, um, we'll try to get back to normal as soon as possible. With that said, what advice would you give a young aviator that's maybe considering getting into this profession? Hmm
1: the sooner you can do it, the better. Um, if, if it's something that you want to do, you need to start now or yesterday. Um, cause we talked about this earlier. Um, seniority is everything. And if I were to, like you were had asked a few minutes ago, what would you have done differently? I would have tried harder to get on at a commuter airline younger in my life. I didn't show up to the commuters until I was 26. And you know, in hindsight, I could have easily done it, you know, at 22. Um, and we had first officers at West Air that were on the BAE 146. They were that senior. They had started that soon. And they were stuck in a first officer position because they weren't old enough to hold an ATP. Oh, wow. And it's like, you know, that's saying something. Yeah. That's somebody who had vision and goals and was making it happen. and. I wished I had tried harder. You know, I could have skipped a few things. I, I shouldn't have gone to work at the Cessna dealer. I should have, you know, left Barry Construction as soon as I had, you know, a thousand hours of PIC in a turboprop airplane and gone to work at a commuter airline. I could have done that sooner. Like I said, I wound up at the commuter airline only because the place I was working for was going out of business and I could see the writing on the wall. I needed a job and um, my eyes were opened after I was there. It's like, you know, these guys are not cowboys. You know, they're well-trained. Um, they know what they're doing. And I didn't have that opinion until I actually showed up there. I kind of thought, oh, God, it's just a bunch of idiots out here flying these things around. <laughs> um, so I, you know, uh, my eyes were opened, and, and I, I gained a lot of respect for the people that I was working with because they really were doing it right. Um, I had been flying charters at that Cessna dealer and the FAA would come in and administer the check ride, and they would have, you know, give me an oral um, and ask questions about oxygen, you know, requirements and, you know, when you needed to wear oxygen and how quickly the airplane had to get down to an altitude that was a breathable altitude. And I could, I could quote the regs, but I couldn't apply it like the people at the airline did. Um, I mean, we would do stuff, uh, the airplane was unpressurized, uh, that I was flying the Bondurani and you can fly above 10,000 feet up to 12,000 feet for 30 minutes without oxygen. And we would use that regulation to get over some weather. So we might go up to 12,000 feet and fly there for 29 minutes <laughs> and then descend back down. And I'm like, you know, that is applying the regs and using it to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes the flights were only an hour long. And so 30 minutes, you know, might make a huge difference in what you're able to do. It's like, maybe you're just looking for a better ride. Um, so the fact that those pilots were able to apply the regs um, versus me just knowing them, it's like, that was eye-opening for me. It's like, you know, you, you guys really are, you know, doing this right. Yeah. I could just spit them out. I couldn't use them like that.
0: Yeah. And, and that really is, a practical application really is, the way you know you really know something. Anybody can memorize a bunch of specs on an aircraft or an engine or or a car or whatever. um, But to be able to apply that information, it really is when you know you've got it. You've mastered it. Um, Last question for you. Think back for me to the person that made the biggest impact to your success in aviation who would that person be and why you
1: know i i don't think there's any question that has to be vern lund (laughs) you know he took me under his wing taught me all that he knew and yeah i don't think there's any question there there were lucky breaks that i had along the way and people that were good to me you know dave barry is certainly one of them that comes to mind um you know anybody who is uh gone out of their way to help you it's like that that person is you know somebody that you recall and remember is being good to you along the way but I mean I've known Vern since 1977 (laughs) and so what's that 43 years Uh, yeah or yeah yeah that's a long time and he's still there for me (laughs) wow so You know, he by far has um, been probably the most influential person in this career for me and been extremely helpful. Um, And I have to certainly give a shout out to my parents. They've always been extremely uh, supportive of me and, you know, always made me feel like what I was doing was important. They did everything that they could, you know, to help support me and get me going on my way. So I'd have to say those uh, three people. Yeah. Well, you know, I just
0: want to say thank you again so much for sitting down with me, telling us your story, uh, your journey in aviation. It's been an amazing treat to fly with you now, what, four or five times um, in the past few years. And getting to hear all of this while flying along has inspired me to always keep my hand in multiple pots and keep, you know, my career progression moving forward. Uh, by branching out and not getting complacent, because I don't think that word even exists in your life. It's complacency.
1: It's funny you say that because that's always part of my crew briefing. It's like you know, like what are your threats? I'm complacent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you joke because there's I have not heard of a single thing, or and I've flown with you now quite a bit, so I haven't seen anything like that at all. Um, but thank you so much for sitting. Down Absolutely,
1: with us. it's been my pleasure.
0: And mine as well. And ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode 48 of Squawk Ident. I want to again thank Captain Dave Letourneau for sitting down with us and sharing his more than 40-year journey in aviation. I also want to spend a moment and thank all of the frontline workers out there. The doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course... All of the airline employees that show up every day to provide essential services for us all. Are you enjoying Squawk Eye Den? We truly hope that you are. The best way you can help us out if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is to leave a review and give us as many stars as you possibly can muster. We want to get the word out and share this podcast with as many aviators out there as possible and those who aspire to be. You can visit our website at www.AviatorTony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can check out episode cover art, episode archives, photos from the flight line. And now you can check out our guest book tab where we have photos from our featured guests. You can also contribute to the show that would greatly help us out with equipment and marketing expenses. You can do that right from our homepage. Right at the bottom, you can do either a one-time or recurring contribution, and you can become a producer of Squawk Ident. If you're on social media, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. One final thank you to Captain Letourneau, and thank you for all of you that take the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other we